Hello and welcome to the Granter Podcast. I'm Ted Hodgkinson and today I'm delighted to be joined by one of Granter's best of young British novelists for Evie Wilde. We talked about her first novel, After the Fire, A Still Small Voice, which was shortlisted for the Orange Prize for New Writers, the Commonwealth Writers' Prize and the Impact Award. Her second novel, All the Birds Singing, which is extracted in the current issue of the magazine, and juggling the running of the review bookshop in Peckham with her writing, her divided heritage between the Isle of Wight and Australia, and why she finds it hard to write a novel without a shark in it. Evie, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to our bunker. Thank you for having me. Um, You are surrounded by, on all sides, (laughs) um, by previous... Uh, granters and particularly granter best of young novelists yeah um, and I wonder if any of the people on those lists have been important to you or if you read any of them when you were um, I certainly read um, when I was about 16 I read some of um, Ian McEwan's early stuff Comfort of Strangers and, and that really the darkness of that um, got me really excited about writing mm. um, but I'm not um I'm not ever all that aware of who is published by who, which is terrible considering I work in a bookshop. <laughs> um, but I, I do not like Ishiguru and, you know, the, the kind of the main men. Yes. They tend to be. <laughs> they tend to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, uh, they, they tend to come in a sort of hard squadron in that. They know, do, but, yeah. But um, so uh, you mentioned that you work in a, in a bookshop. Um Tell me a bit about that and how how did you get started there? It's in Peckham and it's a review bookshop. Thank you. And, yes. and uh, <laughs> just shout out to everyone there. Um, and do you uh, and tell me about your day working there? I mean, sure. do you, how do you write when you're there? Well, I started working there about six years ago, I think, when I was writing the first book, um, and it was just something to make enough money to to write, um, which I didn't really. Um, and I was just there part-time. I've recently taken over um, running it, um, which is really lovely, and it's it's sort of amazing to be able to curate different shelves of short stories and get new authors in and that sort of thing, do events. Um, I've just stopped working six days a week, which is a real relief, um, but I was doing that for about three or four months, which is... Even though it's a it's a great job to have, it's a really relaxed way of working. It's pretty exhausting, especially over Christmas. Um, but yeah, it's just been it's been great. I've organised um, my first Peckham Literary Festival, which happened in November, um, which was sort of focused on new writing um, and short stories. And we've got quite a lot of non-fiction. Um, we had a, a nice talk on how to have a natural death, which was lots of fun. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> which was with um, with someone from the Wellcome Trust and, and Pete Hobbs talking Great. about their favourite subjects. <laughs> Fantastic. Was that connected to the death exhibition at the Wellcome? It was, yeah, the Natural Death Centre. Um, they've got this amazing, beautiful-looking book out, um, which has got three volumes on writing on death and then fictions on death and then mm. a, a sort of um, directory on mm. sort of what to do when somebody suddenly drops dead, which is, is helpful. <laughs> Wonderful, yeah. I, I was at the Wellcome Trust, um, I went to that exhibition, mm-hmm. but prior to that there had been um, a Wellcome Trust, uh, the book uh, prize, 
and the plug was excellent. They just said, do come to an excess revision, it's death. It's quite hard to <laughs> get people to come to that, but actually it was a really good yeah. show. But, um, uh, so that, it seems like a real hive of activity, and you're clearly on your feet a lot of the time, and sort of um, working the shop, and... and I mean, how how do you find time to write? When do you write in the mornings? Or? Yeah, um, well, in the last four months, when I was finishing the final drafts of my second book, um, I was getting up at six, and then I start work at ten at the shop. So that was quite exhausting. Um, but you know, you're you're doing what you enjoy doing. So, mm. and I'm so lucky to be able to do that. Etc. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, it's just I work best in the morning anyway. So as long as the nights weren't too late, it was all right. And there's no temptation to put a Evie Wild sort of big poster in the window. And, and <laughs> Actually, one of the first things I did when um, I took it over was take the Evie Wild poster out of the window <laughs> because it just seemed a little bit too creepy. <laughs> Yeah, otherwise you'd, you'd have to adopt another identity yeah. as the bookseller, wouldn't exactly. you? Exactly. But um, So um, you mentioned Ian McEwan and The Comfort of Strangers, and I want to come back to that in a minute, but um, were you always a reader when you were growing up? Were you from a young Yeah, age? I mean, I read some absolute crap for quite a long time, like mm-hmm. Point Horror and um, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, and then I moved on to Stephen King and um, really loved that. I mm-hmm. think I sort of grew up on, on horror. Yeah. Um, Which quite, Stephen King books, if you can remember? I can never remember what it's called, but there's one um, where there's a woman tied to a bed um, mm. in the forest, and this sort of thing is out there in the forest, or this madman or something, and that's always really um, affected. I always sort of think back to the atmosphere of that book. Mm. I have to find out what it's called. Mm. Um, but I always remember there was... Um, he, he wrote about there being a loon on the lake and I never understood that that was a bird hmm. so that that always helped kind of amp up the creepy yes. levels <laughs> that's terrifying <laughs> madman on the lake um so how old were you would you have been when you were reading point horror and then and then um point being... horror was sort of 13 probably mm-hmm. and then stephen king 15 mm-hmm. maybe okay and because um, in your work there's obviously a, a kind of divided heritage between Britain and Australia mm. um, and the, particularly the wilds of Australia and the um, the hard kind of gnarled um, lives that, that persist in these quite um, uh, difficult um, unforgiving kind of landscapes um, that must have been a big part of growing up for you as well. Mm. Yeah it was I mean when I was, when I was about 15 or 16 I read Cloud Street by Tim Winton mm-hmm. and that had a huge effect on me that was um, that was probably the first time I, I felt totally absorbed in mm. in a book and and felt that I wanted the characters I wanted to know what happened to the characters after the book had ended mm. so I started writing myself because I thought how amazing would it be to be able to write something that you are so immersed in that you can kind of follow these characters for the rest of their lives unfortunately it doesn't work like that <laughs> um but yeah so my my mother's australian and i spent a lot of my childhood in australia um mm. in quite rural um settings my um my grandparents lived on a sugarcane farm mm. that the family still own and it's sort of 
it's like 1950s it's sort of quite similar to the the deep south of america and places mm. um strange religious things and and strange things in the sugarcane and it just always held this really magical mm. creepy exciting feeling for me yeah um one of the, it and it's interesting you make the connection with the south of america because there's something about the epicness the scale of that landscape that mm. it immediately i think puts you in the realm of I want to say the mythic, if that doesn't sound mm -hmm. too pretentious, but the, I like the, it. <laughs> that there's something that those characters, I mean, Frank in, in After the Forest, Hill, Small Voice, um, you have this feeling that he is um, a man alone facing his, his fate in mm. this very, uh, as I said, unforbidding territory. Whereas, um, and I think that there's something immediately kind of propulsive about that setting because mm. you're you're really pitting him against sort of the elements um is that something that you were ever consciously drawn to or it just kind of happened when you when you sat down to write you found you were drawn back to this magical place as you said yeah well i think i think everywhere becomes a, a bit magical if if you're on your own i mean mm. i think just watching one person interacting with their landscape is always mm. weird and the, the places that your own imagination go when you're on your own when when sort of noises mean different things mm. um, but I also I think in um, sort of learning to write I was I sort of I started off very with you know there's sort of a sort of learnt wisdom that you should write what you know and and I think that sometimes gets slightly misconstrued into like you should write about your own life but mm -hmm. as a different character which would be incredibly boring mine anyway um <laughs> and 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 I think I realized that the main thing to do to continue to to make sure that your interest um was sustained in writing a novel was to write a novel that you'd like to read so it's sort of and that you can do anything as long as you do it well mm. or try to do it well um, so yeah, I think that's why there's that mixture in my books of the sort of magical or the, you know, the ghosts and the monsters. I just think I can do that. Mm. I enjoy reading those books and I think that's, I think it's, it's fun to write and it's fun to read. Mm. It's interesting you say the books that you want to read as well. Mm. And there's a consciousness as you're writing or maybe before that of the kind of book that you're dreaming of reading. Mm. Um, the book, I mean, I'm thinking particularly of After the Fire, Still Small Voice, but also All the Birds Singing. There's, I was particularly struck reading them at the way that you move from the sensory to memory mm -hmm. um, really beautifully, and, and um, you, you move in and out of. There's a beautiful section um, that I'd read many years ago, and then I came back to it recently before today um, of Frank when he's touching the the um, patchwork on a tablecloth mm -hmm. and red squares and white squares and um, uh, I've used mythic so I'm going to go all out and use Proustian now <laughs> and say that <laughs> Proustian kind of relationship between um, those kinds of details and his own memory um, but also not just individual memory but memory of conflict and Korean War and features mm. large in that book um, so um 
I suppose my question would be, if it's if these are the kinds of books that you want to read, um, is it that you're also interested in in these um, these bigger historical periods that you you know obviously weren't in the Korean War, mm. but um, these are things that you can approach through fiction, even though mm. you haven't necessarily experienced them firsthand. Yeah, I mean, I really struggled, especially with uh, writing about Vietnam in the first book, because I was worried about kind of taking that dark, deep war that I didn't live through and that I wasn't in, obviously, mm. um, and that I really felt like I had no rights to, um, and just using it as, you know, in a piece of fiction. Um, and the idea of getting it wrong and offending the people who were there. Um, so, yeah, I did I did struggle um, a lot with writing about those things. But I think I came to the conclusion that as long as you're still struggling to find a different, a slightly different angle on it, mm-hmm. um, then you're remembering it or remembering it for those people. It sounds a bit big-headed, but it's... I don't know, my uncle fought in Vietnam Mm. and so I approached it from his direct uh, memories and from diaries and photographs and not from uh, other works of art on the subject and and I just hoped to find a slightly different Mm. angle and uh, and something that in some way rang true to him. Um, who knows what he thinks about it. <laughs> has, he, has he read it? He has read it. He's read it twice. Um, he's not a big reader, so I'm incredibly flattered that he has. Um, and his comment was, I don't know how she knew that stuff. So that's the biggest that's compliment I could have got from you him. You should put that on the back cover. Yeah. <laughs> Tim Strange. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Um, have you had... I mean, it's it's really... I mean. It's really surprising about um, surprising, maybe the wrong word, but it's it's completely realistically male as well. Mm. That book. I mean, I think if you just taken your name off the front mm. cover, I wouldn't have. I would, you know, there would be no kind of. Oh, this book was was you know not written by a, a gnarled older veteran, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and and which you're not. Obviously. <laughs> um, but uh, is there is there and and obviously the new novel is narrated by a. Uh, a in later or earlier sorry in the book she is a, a very tough um strong woman mm. um but also kind of gnarled in her own way but <laughs> you're you're drawn to these gnarled characters but is there sort of a uh there's something particularly satisfying about throwing your voice across gender like that yeah i mean i didn't sort of set out to I don't think I was even aware that I was, you know, writing in a male voice in the mm. first book. I think um, I was just writing the story that I was writing. It wasn't really until I'd finished it that um, my agent pointed out this might be a bit tricky because it's a first novel. It's not autobiographical, obviously, and, mm. um, and people might find it a bit strange that you're, you're writing as a man. Um, it just never occurred to me that it was something even to think about mm. um but i don't know i i'm glad i I'm yeah glad that. Sorry and i that. i think i think part of it is that um i find it easier writing with a lot of distance so i actually found the voice of the female character in the second book harder to get hold of because mm. you know there's 
there's another layer peeled back that you know this could be more like me and and mm. and I in the same way that I find it easier while I'm in England to write about Australia mm. because it's not in front of me and I don't have it to to show me where I'm going wrong um, and I can just sort of fully kind of give over to my imagination and and sort of live in that world I think with with gender it's the same thing you know you can you can imagine yourself as something totally different and alien Mm. not that I think men are totally different and alien (laughs) but you know you can you can just sort of you can give up all of those strings that make you feel like you you have to get something right that you know about um, Mm. if that makes sense but according to your uncle you you do get it right thank god yeah (laughs) but um the um it's interesting you mentioned being away from Australia helps you write about it. Do you, when you go back, how often do you go back, and does it does it um, does it have an impact on how you go back to the writing? Or mm, well, I haven't been back since the the publication of the first book. Mm. Um, so that's I don't know. That was in two thousand and eight, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I used to try and go back once every two years, but it's been a long break um, mm. for various reasons this time. Um, yeah, I do find when I'm there, I write about England. Really? Um, yeah, it's pathetic, really. No, but it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's surprising how um, that manifests. I, mean, yeah. I think it is interesting, the distance you were talking about. Yeah, I just, I think... I think there's a really romantic idea that I love of about writing that you would go to, you know, this beautiful place like Santa Maddalena and you would write about Tuscany and you would just, you know, breathe mm. the smells and but for me it's all in the memory. Um and I think that's why After the Fire came out kind of so fluidly was because they were all memories of childhood which are sort of so condensed and and Mm. concentrated and so they were kind of really easy to get to they were really the atmosphere of of those stories were really easy to sort of access for Mm. me um and then you kind of with the second book I'd sort of I'd used up a lot of the sort of my feeling for Australia in that book so it it kind of um it was kind of melded with other childhood memories of, of growing up in um, in the Isle of Wight, <laughs> which is different. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, um, so, with uh, so going forwards, then is there a kind of um, are you surprised now by maybe the way that those memories are getting closer to the present? Mm. And it, does it mean that um, are you planning to move to Australia <laughs> <laughs> to write about England? Yeah. Um, it's funny actually the I have got um a sort of purely English um novel kind of in mind um mm. to do with uh my grandparents, my English grandparents. And I do wonder how I'm gonna handle the location, but I think possibly because it will be a more historical kind of thing, it will feel like a a different country in a way. Um mm. but I might need a long holiday. It's <laughs> true. <laughs> Um, do you, um, so, okay, I, I, I think, um, the Isle of Wight in Australia, I feel like that's the best <laughs> cultural pairing ever, but it's, um, 
I want to ask you a slightly frivolous question now, because I, I was um, finishing reading your novel recently, the second one, and uh, I was um, uh, I, I was slightly horrified and, and uh, had to put down the moment where there's a, a character who's... Um, uh, the main character who uh, turns to prostitution at one point is having quite um, brutal sex with, with a, a rather... Um, sort of piratey character who's, <laughs> who's kind of he's pretty rough uh, and uh, bangs the bed against the wall so hard that a huntsman spider's nest is unleashed across the whole room and a spider drops onto his face and I was just <laughs> apoplectic after this moment I had to drop the novel I was suddenly oh it was it's uh, it's really it's hilarious I um, but it just occurred to me that spiders and in fact, a couple of um, quite menacing animals uh, <laughs> appear sometimes in your in your novels, mm. and they they um, in in really interesting ways and in really kind of frightening ways sometimes. And maybe I'm just a wuss, but a hunting spider <laughs> seems pretty terrifying to me. <laughs> well, uh, that that scene was sort of taken from something that happened to my um, grandparents. They were members of the Rotary Club mm-hmm. and um, which meant that every now and then they had to have the Rotary wives round for tea mm. and they were these sort of um, stocking wearing large floral ladies all wearing hats in the heat and um, and they all sat round on the veranda, on the front veranda having their tea and scones and, um, and it was really really hot and a big nest of huntsmen hatched from behind a painting and everything came crawling out. It was <laughs> apocalyptic style, God. screaming. Um, yeah, From Dante. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just wonderful because I think um, there's a very sort of 1950s feel to, or there, at least there was when I was growing up, to the um, part of Australia that my family are from. And... Um, and it's all very sort of marigolds and everything is clean and mm. and my family living out on a sugarcane farm a little bit away from the main towns mm. it was always a, a bit of a trauma I think for the, the rotary wives to travel out there <laughs> <laughs> um, but then also there's uh, there are also um, creatures like uh, well there are a couple of shark mm-hmm. scenes in your books as well and and um, you know they, they. Um, you know you traumatize me. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but they, they're kind of. Um, but they're characters in the stories as well. I mean, they're they're not they're not. Um, they're kind of um, part of a living landscape mm. in the stories as well. And a lot of them also seem to represent. So we were talking about memory earlier, and um, the character in All the Birds Singing has a kind of um, relationships relationship. Sorry, to sharks that mm. seem. As though it's an aspect of her memory as opposed mm. to a, a living threat. You say that's something. That... Yeah, um, I mean, I find it quite hard to write a book without a shark in it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot more sharks in in all the birds singing, but I had to cut them out to keep the story kind of how it was supposed to be. Um, I guess I guess sharks are one of those ones that um, I mean, most people doesn't matter where they live have a shark phobia if you're in the Western world. Yeah. Um, and I had a, a, a real shark problem when I was small, um, which I'm actually um, working with a, a graphic artist at the minute, writing mm. a graphic novel, um, 
all about the, the shark phobia growing up in Australia oh. called Rodney Fox, I Love You. And um, Rodney Fox is a famous shark attack survivor. Huh. <laughs> so look him up. I will. Um, <laughs> Googling that right now. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so I guess sharks for me are, are very connected to my childhood and, and to that sort of magical, mystical kind of mm. part of life again. Um, and I just think... I think they are they are sort of the last living monster that we have mm. um the the sea is is sort of that unknown bit mm. of the world and and they live in it and we kill them whenever we possibly can mm. for no reason um so I think they're i think they're one of the things that human beings seem to kind of club together and club on the head yeah yeah. <laughs> Um, it's interesting that you that you had to cut sharks out of this because that must be a very terrifying document somewhere on your laptop oh, yes. of just <laughs> <laughs> shark scenes. I'm happy to <laughs> promise myself that uh, one of the next books I write will be sort of purely about sharks so that I can just get it out of my system. <laughs> it's all about shark attack and then, you know, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm I'm not sure if I'm going to promise to read that or not. I'll, if I do, it might be you know I have to keep the lights on for a while after that. But <laughs> um, it's uh, but it's really interesting that there are some things that do have that that magical uh, quality, and it's obviously something that's really important to you. When you were um, when you say you had a shark problem, you know, that really worries me. But obviously, you were you were you, you were obviously exposed to a lot of this wildlife, and not just at Rotary Club. club meetings, <laughs> yeah, well, um, opposite my grandparents' house um, mm. in Australia was this river, um, and it's quite close to the mouth of the river. Mm. So there are a lot of sharks in there, a lot of bull sharks, which can go from salty to. Mm-hmm. Um, to clear water and um, and so directly opposite their sort of little pontoon was a, a shark fisherman and he used to take me out when I was very small um, in his little tinny boat which is like you know the kind of boat over here we would use to row across a pond right. <laughs> and, <Yeah>. um, and <laughs> we'd go and pull up so very safe yeah, yeah. absolutely <laughs> we'd go and pull up the shark line mm-hmm. And um, and at the time, I was just horrified because I was a bit like, you know, there's evidence of what lurks down there and they're big and they're all kind of man-eaters. And <laughs> oh um, but and now I think back to it and, and how sad it was, how it was just, you know, pulling up this line with hundreds of hooks on and finding all these huge dead sharks on it. And if they're alive, knocking them on the head with a bar and... And all mm. that happens is uh, you take the jaws out for tourists um, and then you take the fins off for um, shark mm. fin soup. Right. And uh, the rest of it, dead or alive, just gets plopped back in the drink and that's it. That happens in the novel and it's it's so it's such a strange... It's so wasteful. I mean, mm. apart from anything else, it's so... If you're a creature like that, it seems like... Um, so a cult really yeah it's it's very dark and i mean um the fact that a lot of them are still alive when when they're put back in they're just stunned and then uh bits of them are cut off and they're they're left to drown 
beaten mm-hmm. by other sharks. It's there's it's that thing of because they're sharks, mm. no one minds about it. If they were pandas, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's harder to sympathise. Yeah, but um, uh, yeah, and and yet um, there are monsters. There are certainly monsters that lurk in in the novels, mm-hmm. but there's also a celebration of nature. I mean, maybe um, uh, we've already talked about aspects of that the celebration there, but in the new novel. I I thought that the bird song sections were just glorious. Those long, um, uh, I could try and do an impression of it, but it would sound <laughs> oh, ridiculous. God, <laughs> um, but the the uh, um, the kind of phonetics of bird song, yeah, and but also kind of blurring into language and and um, blurring back um, to sounds again, and. Um, you're obviously a very acoustic writer anyway, but that was that sort of a joy to do those sections? It was really wonderful, and actually there was a hell of a lot more um, in the in the early drafts. There were sort of pages and pages, because um, I sort of imagined it being like a visual thing as well. Obviously, mm. very few people would sit down and read sort of four mm. pages of Birdsong, but I think there's something nice in the way that... Um, Acoustically, you, you know, you can sometimes hear words in bird song. Mm. So, you know, um, I think there's a, I think there's an Australian song about magpies and cups of tea, and it's just, you know, about mm-hmm. the song of the magpie sounding like, mm. you know, "Do you want a cup of tea?" Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's something, there's something really nice that punctuates um, or can punctuate writing quite well in bird song. Mm. Mm. Um. So and and also one of the things that's really interesting looking at the two books um, next to each other is that there's there's a kind of deep deeply textured reality to both of them. Um, they're very um, they're very tactile and they sort of evoke um, uh, the moment in a lot of in a sort of dusty and and smelly and <laughs> complexity. Um, and so they're deeply. Um, realistic novels in that sense but there's lots of interesting jumps happening in time mm. in the first book there's um, uh, I suppose a more traditional leap between two different time periods and then in the most recent one there's actually an inverted timeline the trajectory mm. moves backwards um, that's quite a, um, that's a that's a very um, that seems like a very deliberate novelistic move and it seems like something that you would have maybe had to have thought of beforehand or did it just sort of emerge um well first of all it's a real pain in the ass to write <laughs> <laughs> for some reason it uh towards the sort of real action points the real climaxes it becomes like a mathematical puzzle to to mm. write like that um and i really at points wished i hadn't done that but um the reason i did it was it, it in both books um with the with the time the jumping about and stuff it just purely seemed like the best way to tell the story mm-hmm. um to get tension to get you know to get a feeling of memory as well you know you the when you're thinking about when you're living with a past mm-hmm. the most recent past is the closest to you and and then the the deeper you delve because of whatever's going on in your present life you know the further back you go mm. and of course it you know it doesn't really work like that you jump around but I just felt like there was something you know the 
the starting point that Jake, um, the protagonist in the second book, um, where she starts from is such a difficult place for her to think about that it needed to come right at the end of changes happening to her in her present mm. life, if mm-hmm. that makes any sense at all. Yes. Um, but, but really, um, any kind of pissing about I've done with, with sort of time and you know structure and plot it's it's just down to how to tell the story in the best way and and how to make it um enjoyable to write and enjoyable to read i think Mm. rather than any huge overarching desire to be fancy (laughs) (laughs) no it wasn't similar but it's it's what you it reminds me of that um t.s Eliot line you know our, our ends are our beginnings and it's not a, it's not sort of pyrotechnics mm. for no reason. It's as you say because those those earlier memories are the more formative ones. Mm. Um, there's a there's a tendency in a lot of novels, I suppose, to to you have to partly believe that where you're reading towards what the what the character is becoming is the interesting thing. Mm. But um, it's a really interesting reversal to say well what they're becoming is what they always were, what mm. happened to them at this earlier point. Mm. Mm. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I, and I think I think there's nothing more interesting than, than looking at someone and knowing that something huge is about to happen to them. Mm. And sort of the bits that remain the same and the bits that are kind of gone forever is always interesting. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask you some... Uh, some um, more Blue Peter style questions <laughs> um, but um, <laughs> who um, other than Ian McEwan and the Cement Garden um, uh, were there other writers who came after Stephen King who who were really important um, obviously there's Tim Winton as well but. yeah um, I, think, I mean I, I read a lot of Angela Carter mm-hmm. um, who I think she's um, I think at 16 she was so important to me and I I still think she's wonderful but I can't quite read her in the same way now I think I, I overdosed um, but I think I read uh, The Magic Toy Shop mm. um, that was given to me by um, an English teacher and and I think the voice in that was just so sort of straightforward in a funny way even though Angela mm. Carter's very sort of you know, all the magical realism and stuff. It just seemed like something that you could immediately connect with mm. and that was so enjoyable to read and mm. and it felt so it felt as if it had been written with such ease, which I'm sure it wasn't, but mm. it just felt really pure mm. and um straightforward. Mm. And um you mentioned an English teacher and that's precisely what I was gonna <laughs> ask you next, but um did you have one that um really inspired you and, and sort of put a fire under you at a certain age? I did. I had I had two, actually. I had um, Mrs. DePelle and Mrs. Shedden, and they were... I was awful at school. I was in the, in the lowest group for everything and sort of f- solidly a thicko. <laughs> I, I can't believe that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, no, I, and I absolutely stopped trying at anything. I was just waiting mm. for school to be over. hated school. Mm. Um, and so... And then we had to write a poem or something. And mm. I think I wrote some hideous kind of, like, woe is me style 
ugh, um, about being a 16 year old and um, and she saw something in it um, Mr Pele and was incredibly encouraging um, took me out to see she took me out to she introduced me to Angela Carter and then I mean obviously not in person um, and then <laughs> she took cool. me out to see um, to see someone talk on Angela Carter and took me to the theatre and stuff like that and just um, made me think that I wasn't a total lost cause um, and just sort of you know, directed reading is always good. Otherwise, you're going to mm. stick on the point horror. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Mm. Um, and then, so have, did you ever? Did you continue to write poetry? I wrote poetry. I I wrote it all through my BA at Bath Spa. Um, I did creative writing there. Um, I think there's maybe one poem that I wouldn't completely die if someone read, but they're all. I don't think I really knew what I was doing. I think I was mm. just sort of, I was just grasping at images and mm. um, wondering if that was okay. <laughs> but um, no, not not any good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I'm always um, sort of suspicious of the people who, who claim that they do know what they're doing. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but then, did you find Baspa, um uh, helpful? Did it was yeah. it a good experience? It was fantastic. Um, I did uh, this sort of modular course where you did creative writing and then I think I did art and um, photography and um, and so it all sort of felt like it fed into each other, you know, it's all the mm. same thing um, doing creative stuff and But did you start writing poetry and then you kind of turned to fiction or were you, were you just sort of writing both I started in parallel? writing poetry and then did a few short stories and then mm. um and then when I did my MA at Goldsmiths was purely short stories I mm. never considered writing a novel because my um my opinion of of what it meant to write a novel was to have some burning issue or some fully formed idea in your head of of what your novel would be mm. and um I had a really great tutor um Stephen Knight mm-hmm. at Goldsmiths. He just said, "No, you know, that's what I thought." And actually, my agent said, "You can write a sentence, so then write another one next to that, and just keep going." Hmm. And you don't have to know where it's going in the first instance. In fact, you don't have to know where it's going until the very last week. So, recently found out, <laughs> <laughs> or even after that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you don't have to know necessarily what it's about. I mean, this is the first time I've talked about my second book um, hmm. with anyone. And I've I've realised from writing and talking about the first book that you don't really get an idea of what you've written until a couple of years later when you realise you're you're talking about the same things over and over and that's what you're actually interested in. But right. it's not like you become an expert on the things you're writing about just because you've written a, a shoddy novel about them. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember who it was that said that the the best time to edit your novel is two years after you've written it, just before you go on stage at a literary event. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think there's a a definite truth in that, especially if you're going to read out a section (laughs) and you're you're sort of about to draw breath and you just think, this is just mortifying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I, I don't think we we can possibly finish without me commenting on your amazing hair um, <laughs> which you tell me beforehand that you've, you've done yourself I have. Is, and it's because no one can see it it's red it's and much it's better kind of like <laughs> yeah it's amazing thank like, you so do you, you, you 
do this regularly? I don't. I do it. Um, I, it turns out I do it whenever I finish a novel. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Is it like a sort of a kind of celebration? I think it's yeah. a bit of a blind panic. I think <laughs> it's um, with the first one. I had a, a very short black bob, mm. um, and this one is sort of long red fringe and mm. um i think it's just finishing working on the book and then thinking right what shall i do now and mm. uh, having a little bit too much time on my hands um, <laughs> before i sort of refocus on something else it's dangerous that there are some chemicals involved there it really. is <laughs> it really is <laughs> dying chemicals <laughs> <laughs> but um i just have one this is purely speculative but um the novels are very musical to me. I think they, they re I mean, particularly the last one is, mm. is very, very musical. Um, we haven't talked yet about if you feel like your influences are outside of literature, if there are musicians or, mm. or bands that you listen to when you're writing. I think I, um, I get in trouble for this a lot with uh, my boyfriend. I'm terrible at music. I find it, um, I find it too emotional most of the time um mm. to listen to um I, I mean i love it i love neil young for example mm. but i cannot ever listen to him that's mm. just you know the end of my week um <laughs> and and my boyfriend is incredibly musical and sort of likes playing me things new stuff and i just you know especially if he plays me something before it's time to go to bed it's just i'm just done and wide awake <laughs> and yeah terrified and horrified and sad so i don't know there is I think that there's music that I feel is safe, which is sort of like 1950s, 60s, um, you know, the Beach Boys. Mm -hmm. um, it's not really safe at all. I find that's incredibly sad. Mm -hmm. um, but it's uh, it's something that I don't feel as connected with as Neil Young, if mm. that makes any sense. It's not music of my childhood, but it's this weird music of, of another era and mad people and I think it's really crazy and mm. and creepy I like mm. creepy music I love um I love music about murder actually I've discovered really <laughs> you know like sort of Nick Cave and and yeah. country stuff that's about trailer parks and death and stuff. how did I you think... discover you have a playlist on your iPod. I do <laughs> <laughs> There's, there's Murder Tonight in the Trailer Park. There's uh, Wild Rose. Yeah, there's all sorts of murder songs. Um, or, or songs that imply murder, like mm. um, the Elvis Costello song, um, I Want You. That mm. is one of the darkest, sort of creepy songs that seems to imply that someone's just bludgeoned someone else to death, even though it's never... Maxwell Silverhammer. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Stagger Lee. <laughs> yeah. Um... Well, wonderful. I, I, I'm going to have to get that playlist off you. <laughs> it's yours. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to me. It's a real pleasure and congratulations on being on the list. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Granter Podcast. Available for free download on iTunes and SoundCloud and available on selected British Airways flights. To subscribe to Granter, please visit our website, grant.com forward slash subscribe. <laughs>